0: The talk today is entitled, The Landscape of Awakening. And so you say, uh, can you get on to a different subject? The answer is no. (laughs) Never. It's the point of the whole thing. I, I, in my life, would have loved, thrived within this message. Uh, but it, what, there were a lot of people that weren't talking about it other than an abstraction, something that will happen later, lifetimes from now. Just put in your time, I was told. Well, it's not putting in your time is exactly the wrong direction. <laughs> exactly the wrong direction. Ego loves putting in your time. But awareness isn't about that. So, because of that, uh, yearning of my own heart, but also the alignment of my own heart to the fact that it doesn't get spoken about sufficiently or conclusively, uh, that's what this final retreat in my life is devoted to, but well before now, as, as some of you can can, can, can testify. So, uh, <clears throat> I'd like to... Uh, start with a quote Uh, and this is from the Upanishads which is a Hindu scripture not that which the eye sees but that whereby the eye can see know that alone to be Brahman the eternal and not what people here adore Not that which the ear hears, but that whereby the ear can hear. Not that which is known, but that whereby something can be known. Not that which the mind thinks, but that whereby the mind can think. Know that to be Brahman the Eternal, and not what people here adore. I love these uh, <laughs> these paragraphs that absolutely cut to the core. You know, it, so the paragraph is stating that it's not what we see; it's that we can see; it's the seeing itself. Now, why isn't that we are so distant? from the understanding that the seeing itself is the eternal, is the sacred, because we're too focused on what we're seeing. That's where our mind goes. That's where our attention goes. That's where our desires go, our aversions go. And that keeps us contained within sight, me, seeing the thing. And then the repulsion or delight in seeing that thing. and then we get a, a, an accompanying narrative and relationship with the scene of that thing and then we remember what we saw along with the feeling tone that it created with it that we created from the scene. And then the whole thing goes into a memory bank and the next time we see it the same thing happens except this time I'm more delightful or I don't like it as much, right? but the seeing not that that which the eye not that which the eye sees but the seeing itself what is seen in this moment is another way of saying what is seeing in this moment i love that because it gives you it there there it is there's the path there's the conclusion. There it is. It's not complex. In fact, it's as simple as you can make it. I mean, what's simpler than that? It doesn't make it easy, but it makes it clear. It A direction that's clear. So it's the awareness that sees, but we're too prone to the objects of seeing, that we're seeing. That's why I love... Uh, oftentimes I think, Ryan and I, our talks go hand in glove, she was talking about, you know, the um, uh, old age, death, and dying. And that's the end of the object. She was talking about the ending of objects. And much of Buddhism is about the disenchantment with objects. And we do it through impermanence, but then impermanence becomes kind of this embedded wisdom that we think that's all the farther we need to go. You know, it's like, it's a, a Nietzsche, a Nietzsche. A Nietzsche it gets us <laughs> going. It's not the end product. Impermanence shows us the dissatisfaction of the object, but that's not the end we have to dis- become disenchanted with the objects of the world to be even to be able to notice the scene so that's what this is that's what in my opinion the buddha was pointing towards he was pointing towards the scene he was pointing towards the awareness that exists outside of the object so what happens in that communication between the object and the person seeing is that the person arises with the object. What are we but the memory of what we see? And the details and the and the thoughts that accompany that and the emotional expression of that and the narrative that encases all of that. That is who we are. In the moment we see the object, we arise with that object. Now, if you're someone who sees and you like to persist and keep yourself persisting, you're going to want to look at objects that keep you alive. Because if you look at stillness, it's not going to keep you alive. There's no emanation from stillness that enhances the the sense of self. In fact, the fact of stillness eliminates the sense of self. That's it. Why do we have to spend torturous hours trying to figure our way through the scriptural reference of this and that sutta and the Buddha says this and that, when it's as simple as what is seeing. Sometimes we have to find our way through other traditions to clarify our own. Our tradition is very encased within centuries of people telling us what it's all about. Memory. Objectification. I'm sure when the Buddha was alive, it was a much clearer message. Much clearer. But we love being encased in the tradition because it gives us a sense of time, sense of self, a sense of joining belonging none of that's wrong much of it could be useful but we stand on the buddha's shoulders and by what i mean by the buddha i mean the tradition the shoulders of the tradition and look out clearly from that to move you stick I don't know very many people, I'm not going to say no, know any, because I do know some, who are so encased in the tradition that they aren't myopic, they can't see, they have no farsightedness, they're, still, they're nearsighted. And this takes a range of vision that is universal. So shifting from form what I see the person who sees form to the formlessness of seeing itself. That's the journey of the spiritual that's the spiritual journey. Going from form the delighted seeing which creates me the seer and the delighter the person who is enjoying life until you become disenchanted with it. You can't go far as long as you're not disenchanted because you don't really want it to stop. In fact, that, which, that throws us back on self-beautification. Because I want myself to be as pretty as the objects I see too. I have to live up to the perception of and scale of my own beauty. I'm not as pretty as she is or I am this or I am, all of that, all of that, all of that. And when you're disenchanted, you get quiet. and start asking questions about the fix I seem to be in in this world, and unable to pull myself out, and this, and having anyone else pull me out. I seem tied in a knot of my own making, and I don't know how to get out of it. It's a genuine yearning of the heart that now will go anywhere, do anything. Not self-beautify, not just dabble, with it but want to go right into it throw it open come what may now to show us that we have been on that path towards seeing I want to use a different frame of reference for how we have grown that reference is the thinning of oneself. Now here's the problem. The, the, what I mean by that, I can very, show it to you very quickly, is that there's not a person in this room, I guarantee you, if you've done the practice with any kind of sincerity, there's not a person in the room that wants to hurt someone. A desire to hurt. It's not fair used to have it. I certainly did. In my teens. I can't wait try Right? But it's not there anymore. I make a lot of mistakes and I, a lot of people get hurt and hopefully I learn from them that it, the intentionality to really hurt is not there. That is self-thinning. You are thinned through your practice. Now, other Everything is a self-thinning that we do in the room. The problem is that most of us use it for self-replenishment rather than self-thinning. Self-density is the opposite of self-thinning. You get prideful or you don't think you've done enough or you bring in a whole logic about how much you've done and what you've done, which keeps you very thick in terms of its comparison to the thinning field. So the thinning field, the thinning of self... Everything we do here is to self-thin. As I showed you the last time I spoke, the thinning... Okay, this is a sign of age. I forgot what I was about ready to say. So I ought to go on. So, self-thinning... Is in how you sit. Are you sit? We talk about releasing, letting go, surrendering. Is the word I like, but most people associate surrender with surrendering to some kind of thing or person that has nothing at all to do with surrender. Surrender is just not. That's surrender not involving yourself, but seeing. So That's what the meditation is supposed to do. And the less we involve ourselves with our narrative, in that moment, because don't think of yourself as some kind of historical figure that was born. You do that, you're missing the whole point of it. You're not that. You're not that. Your memory is that. But you're not that. You're rising in the moment. You manifest from the ingredients of the moment. That's how your manifestation occurs. Moment after moment manifestation. And so if you start weighing in from the past about what you have done, you're already lost in yourself in that weighing in because the weighing in is the process of self-density. But if you allow things to come and go as they're coming and going, not weighing in, then in that moment, in that instant, you are very light, very thinned. Oh, that was a good meditation. I felt love in my heart, and I felt spaciousness. Wow, I've got to get that one back. (laughs) Now we're dense, confused, we've lost our way, and the next time we sit down, it's going to be even worse. Does this make sense to you? (laughs) If it makes sense to you, for God's sake, there's something there. You know? If, If it feels resonant. We've been nodding our heads for too long. Often because everybody is under the delusion that there's someone becoming not nobody. They're on their way to becoming nobody. There's somebody now, on their way to becoming nobody. Not that they are never somebody, there's always been nobody. We have to back up. This isn't the truth we're going to come into and everything becomes homogenized and we explode? It's a truth that we've been carrying with us the entire time, but covering up that truth. Pretending something different. It's a game of pretension. i got a, a great example. Okay, I have a dream example. <laughs> so, i reached a point in my practice where I couldn't quite figure out if the world existed outside of me or whether it was all mind created. It, it was a, a ponderance of mine for for some time. I just and there was no way for me to get a sense of that because every time I touched or felt what was outside of me I knew that the mind was touching and creating the sense of touch and the touch was then being interpreted in a certain way and it's coming up with its own historical and memory Picture of what the world was from that sense of touch, but it had nothing to do with what it was touching. So I couldn't figure out my way out of that. But here's what happened: I had a, dream. I went to sleep, and I had a lucid dream. And I mean, it's the only time in my life. I'm not the only time I've had lucid dreams, but lucid dreams have kind of been between dream and wakefulness. This was wakefulness, 100% wakefulness in that dream. And it was a dream, and I recognized it as a dream. And I was a part of the dream. And I looked around, there was some guy with a weird-shaped head that I thought was an alien, and he was looking at me weird because I thought he knew I just woke up out of knowing or believing in him. or I you know it was all this kind of stuff. That was all the dream part, but I also knew exactly what was going on. So I said, wait a second here. Here's my opportunity to see if the world is as real as it is in a consensus reality. This is consensus reality. So I went to a, a stone wall and I said, okay, I'm going to look out and see if the detail, the actuality of this experience matches that which I know in my everyday uh, life. I looked over And my God, every single detail was as acute and as clear and as present as my own life. As looking out the window here and looking at grass or whatever you might look at. Touching it, I could feel it. Everything. Absolutely. And that that left an enormous impression. I couldn't... Then I woke up. And at first I was just amazed by the lucidity of the dream. I forgot the... I didn't forget, but I I didn't focus in on the detail of what I just discovered. And then a few days later I said, my God, I just saw that ponderance. I just understood that the mind has the ability to create the exact world that we call wakeful consciousness does. It was amazing, and it went to such a deep place that now I just don't believe in any of this. I don't believe it's real. I don't mean it's an illusion and you hear that all the time, oh, it's all a dream. No, it's, it's a relative expression of consciousness. It's a sleeping consciousness is another expression of consciousness. This is wakeful consciousness. It's an expression of the mystery. Not the absolute, not the final say. Not at all. And it's coming from here. Because this is the derivation of consciousness itself. The content of consciousness. So, that was a real turning point for me. And because if you have a reality outside yourself, you're kind of stuck in dualism. You know, I have the problem of myself, then I have the problem with reality being also something out there that I have no understanding at all of what it is. And so I just, I get locked in, you can get locked into that. So as we shift out of thingness, our perceptions also shift. Because thingness doesn't represent so much thingness as it does division or separation. You see, it's... we divide and then embrace. We put things separate from us in terms of subject and object. And then we become enamored with that object. And that enamoration of separation becomes the way that we relate to the entire world. I'm here and everything else is outside of me. That's false. That's a false perception. So as we start releasing from the sense of me being separate from, which also means you release the enamoredness you have with the objects of the world, you become thinner and quieter. The quieter you become, the thinner you are, and the less the world keeps the shape of this and that. It doesn't mean it all becomes an homogenized ball. It does not. Here are the Buddha's words about what it looks like from that perception. Another example of how, when I first read it, I was—I comp- didn't know what the hell he was talking about. But I knew there was something. So listen to this. Very short. By the way, the Sutta Nipata is an amazing text. Amazing. I go to the amazing text. I don't. I, anyway. So here, here it is. There is a state of perception where form ceases to exist, as we have known it, said the Buddha. It is a state without ordinary perception. Not the normal way we relate. And without disordered perception. Suddenly it doesn't all turn upside down and you can't see anything if you need to see something. And without no perception, so it's not all blanked out, and without any annihilation of perception. And I thought, what? 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 But as the mind becomes less thing-oriented, it becomes quieter. And the perceptions that held it to thing-orientation become quiet. And the things of the world take on a different configuration that is not ordinary, nor is it disordered. It's not separate and it's not homogenized. It's not diverse. And so the nature of what you begin to see shifts with your thinness. And with your thinness, the world no longer holds the opportunity to grab it in the same way it did. Because what are you grabbing? You're grabbing some oneness. try to grab that sometimes. But in oneness, there's still an eye perceiver. It's light. It's it's, it's a fly-on-the-wall perceiver of eye. But still there. Now, there is a shift from oneness to unity consciousness. That's where the I is no longer, no longer has a resting place in mind. When that happens, the world is just as it is, without me seeing it in that way. The sense of I is not there, the whole world arises in unity, in unity. That is a remarkable shift of consciousness, remarkable, and is a true sense of awakening, one of the many that we will have along the way as long as we self-thin. For self-thinning and wakefulness walk hand in hand. Wakefulness, we're all there. What wakefulness is essentially self-thinning ourselves in in time. We're all on the journey of wakefulness, of being more awake. We become more conscious, we're more willing to look at our our denial system, our our defense mechanisms. We're real more willing to admit what we are not only in logistics and and attitudes and beliefs and opinions and all of that, but also that we don't know as much as we thought we did. So there's a lessening of the knowledge base on which we implant much of our distance into the objects through our knowledge. Our knowledge of that is different than our knowledge of the self, it keeps a distance from us, but the way I try to bridge that's is to know more about it. And the more I know about it, the more enhanced my reputation as a knower, but the more distance I maintain through that knowing. Isn't that remarkable? The very accolades that this society provides also provides the assurance that you're never going to meet unity consciousness. <laughs> oh well, it's just the way it is. So all of us are awakening. We have to find. We have to stay within ourselves. I use this expression a lot, and I mean that. What is it? Don't try to. I'm just going to deal with the seeing now. You know, not not. Okay, we well can try that. Try and see if it works for you. Usually, we need to build up enough wisdom so that we know why we're not focusing on the objects. What does the object contain that is? keeping me alienated from the scene. What do I contain that keeps me alienated from the scene? Where's the scene anyway? Who, I don't even know what he's talking about. You see, all of that has to be, for most people, it's a gradual understanding of wisdom, accumulation or I mean, realization is the real word. You begin to realize what all of this is. It's not something you have to think about or read about. It's in you so deeply that that's the way you see. And we're trying to steer you on this course, we're trying to steer you so that you're at least on the path of true seeing. True seeing. True seeing. Not just circular. circular. Have you ever seen a stream that's moving? but there's a leaf that's caught in a little estuary and it's just going around and around and around and around I want to take that leaf and put it out there in the middle of the stream and let it move, let it go. So I want to talk a little bit although we have had a demonstration I'd like to talk a little bit about the awakened experience. Now through the journey of awakening, there are awakening moments. No, 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 no question. The awakening moments are revelatory. Because no matter what I say to you, unless you've realized it, it really doesn't change anything. You have to want to realize it, and the only way that I know to be able to do that is for you to go see it for yourself and not be read to or spoken to. Sometimes the spoken word can take you to that place. Sometimes it can't because of the blockages we have or the distance we put to the knowledge that's coming in. See we're always putting distance to things. And it's that distance that creates, I want to know this but I don't want it to I don't want to realize it. I want to know something about what he's saying, but I don't want to take it in and swallow it. So, we have to swallow this. This is a swallowing journey. <laughs> so, what, I, so, I thought I would read... One minute enough time. Okay. I thought I would read... It's a very good book. <laughs> well, I actually think it's a very good book. Even though I wrote it, I still think it's a very good book. Uh, And so I want to read to you uh, about uh, awakening awakening moments. But you just need to know, you know, the thing is, it can happen to you any time. And if you haven't had the background to know what's happening to it, you can think you're going crazy. Like read Eckhart Tolle's uh, biography. He thought he was going crazy, and so what? The beauty of Buddhism is that it prepares you. So, oh, I remember somebody saying that I was going to things would be turned upside down. Yeah, things get turned upside down. At this point, there can be a sudden rupture in our consciousness that reveals the unconditioned ground of our being, which I am defining as the first phase of awakening. Though this moment of awakening can occur at any time, it is more likely to arise when our energy and intent are correctly aligned towards a full-hearted and sincere quest of the truth of existence, and when there is less solidification of form. This moment can be described in many ways and has many levels of depth, but generally it involves a perceptual shift in which the aware seeing is not coming from us. It is like a great light that showers everything with radiance, exposing all the darkened areas. In fact, awareness observes the sense of self from the perspective of the ground of the unconditioned. And this ground is continually giving birth to the sense of self. And you see that. There is seeing of that. You're not seeing it. There is seeing of that. And that changes everything. You see yourself being birth birthed. And that takes you completely forever out of the sense of what you have thought yourself to be. And it can make you dizzy. I mean figuratively busy. And it indelibly imprints upon your heart. You now know your way. You don't care whether Buddha was to come down and say, made a terrible mistake, we are all separate. And saying, Excuse me, Buddha. Would you get out of my way, please? It's true. And so you're drawn to people or Uh, expressions of that truth that you now know. Nothing else matters to you because it's all secondary to the truth. The rest is just pretending. So that's the first phase of awakening. As we might expect, this changes everything and yet in some inexplicable way nothing changes. The sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, and thoughts of life continue on as before, but some primitive orientation has now been severed. We know what existence is and we know its source. The second phase of awakening, there comes a point along a diagram I show in the book, where consciousness shuts down completely. This is another, it can happen, doesn't matter which one happens first, they don't have to be in synchronicity to each other. They're usually, in my experience, two different moments. There comes a point along the line shown in the diagram where consciousness shuts down completely. No consciousness, no perceptions, no self, No other, no experience, none, nothing. No experience whatsoever, period. We are completely, and we and the world are completely eliminated, completely released and gone. But so is everything else. The realm of experience is transcended and the void is entered. This is the complete unraveling of all duality. It is the absolute unconditioned expressed as itself alone before the unconditioned emitted a perceptual field. It sounds exotic. It's not. It's not. It's close. It closes the scene. The first expression of that void is awareness. The first creative expression. Which is also unconditioned, still, timeless, boundless, spacious. And most of us experience the transformation that occurs as, as our identity is released as an individual person into that universal Aspect of awareness. We know ourselves as awareness. That's the first, that's how it usually transpires. And that's a very different, it, this, the sense of self maintains it still has its quirks and it doesn't lose its character and it still could be obnoxious. <laughs> and there can still be deep layers of. I was going to use a Buddhist term, skandles, but I just don't want to use it, uh, of, of uh, trauma in us, of conditioning, that comes forth and plays us out. And often we'll get lost in that for a while until the thing irons out, until we find our way. But it's, we find it pretty quickly. We find it pretty quickly. And we're not lost for long. Now, is that the end? No. Because it's disembodied. It's like many people get attached to that emptiness. Emptiness, another word, inconceivable. Another word, incomprehensible. Forget emptiness. Emptiness is a scary word to most people. But is the mystery scary to you? Is mysterious, incomprehensible? No, that delights me. I'll go there any time. So, don't use emptiness if you use it as a word that keeps you contracted. So, the disembodiment, I mean, you're, why would you ever want to come back? It's like heavenly. There's no suffering. No suffering. There is space. Unlimited, timelessness, absolute stillness. Why? Because there's more. (laughs) You can't stay up there because it's not complete. So we come back down, we descend back into the heart. We descend back into our bodies. Our body is a form. We descend back into the formation of ourselves. And you're in a... It's like... But it's not caught in the same consciousness that it was before. You carry with it the infinite, even in the limited. And they're not in contradiction. They're not in contradiction. And now you can you can act wisely, although oftentimes we're still under the influences of our past conditioning because now we've descended back into all of that. But we come out of it very quickly. And so side by side, the heart lives within the infinite. And so this is really a heart-oriented... <laughs> practice and so one of the thinning mechanisms you okay dear okay you let us know if you're not okay i'm going to leave you alone until i hear from you okay Again, I forgot uh, what I was going to say. We come back as a totality of it all. <coughs> I do not believe in fully wakeful, full wakefulness. I do not believe in that. I think that's a misnomer. I think it's a wish. Where I don't have to do anymore. That's it. Done. I don't believe that. Life is not done with you ever. We're always growing. We're always uncovering. We're always seeing anew. We're always learning. Forever. We're always growing in our ability to love. There is no endpoint in that. Never an endpoint. At the same time, there is the being component of us that is finished, is, is still, is forever itself. And there's the becoming part of us that is forever engaged, learning, adapting, being. And those two rest side by side in perfect harmony. Really as one. Because the form and the formless are not separate from each other. Form is not one thing and the formless another. They come together in the union of the heart. In the union of silence, And speech. And so I wish us all just that. We should for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.